1: Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel, with the Ottaway Game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favourite podcasts. (音楽) We'll be right back. back. Welcome to Crawlspace. I'm Tim here alone today in the Crawlspace studios. Lance Reenstierna is on assignment, but don't worry, he is a part of the upcoming interview. This interview that we're about to play is with Dr. Lee Meller. Really impressive guy, someone that we met at the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases Conference in Albany back in April 2019. He's a doctor, he's a PhD, he's a criminologist, an author, and a musician. His books include Rampage, Cold North Killers, and he co-wrote Understanding Necrophilia, So uh, you can see where this is headed already, I think, and probably a good time to mention that uh, discretion is advised. Some of this gets a little bit dark. He also has his own podcast called Murder Was the Case. Definitely give it a listen. We talk about it a bit in the interview. It's really informative and uh, educational. You will like it. Links to all these are in the show notes. So thank you very much. We're uh, excited to introduce you to Dr. Lee Meller. And I wanna introduce you to another new podcast, one that is coming under the Crawl Space Media Umbrella, a show that we are really excited about because we we see it as an extension of the Mind Hunter project uh, from Netflix. If you don't know that show, check it out and it's because it's real. It's real research into serial killers, and that's what these fellas are doing. They don't have PhDs like Dr. Lee Meller, but the work is really compelling, and I'm sure Dr. Lee Meller would be really into it because, as you'll hear in the interview, Dr. Lee does this kind of thing as well, interviewing serial killers and trying to learn the psychology behind what makes them tick. And so that's really what this show is all about. It's Chris Duet and Andrew Dodge. They host a podcast called Criminal Perspective. And I'm going to play a clip right now. And again, they're coming under the Crawl Space Media umbrella, so you're going to hear a lot more about them. But basically what they do is speak to killers, incarcerated murderers, serial killers, spree killers, you name it. Okay, so here's a quick clip of an upcoming episode of Criminal Perspective it contains an interview with Tashia Stewart. Tashia was convicted of murdering her mother, Judy Bear in her home on March 3rd, 2011, in Pasco, Franklin County, Washington. The state's case that compelled a jury to convict her was that Tashia murdered her mother in a plot to obtain insurance money. Tashia claims that the killing was in self-defense, and in this clip she outlines what happened that led to her shooting her mother. But I need to warn you, discretion is advised. We were in her bathroom,
2: and she, uh, I was using the restroom, and she comes
0: up. She had a big, large
1: walk-in closet, and she comes up out of it while I'm washing my hands. And she's got this ax thing in her hand, and she starts chasing me around the house with it. And she keeps chasing me and keeps chasing me, and uh, I get away from her, and I'm hidden. And I realize that when I'm hidden, that if she were to come in the area that I'm at, that I'm screwed she um, she can get me and I, I can't get out. I'm trapped. And so I was coming out of where I was at, out of the closet, and she's coming towards me with her axe in her hand. And that's when um, I don't remember how I got the gun and I don't remember pulling the trigger, but I shot her. Okay, so check out this show, Criminal Perspective. There are links in the show notes. You are not going to want to miss it. They also have a Patreon page where you get some real intense serial killer and other kind of killer interviews. And I got to tell you about Stitcher Premium. This show, Crawl Space, began in February of 2017, but not every episode is on the public feed. That's because our archive is with Stitcher Premium. So check it out there, stitcherpremium.com. Use code MMM for a free month. And speaking of MMM, that stands for Missing Mora Murray, we've done 60 creator commentary episodes, which is sort of me and Lance recording over the old episodes. Uh, really unique project, kind of like a director's commentary. We call it creator's commentary, but there's a lot of new insight and a lot of us making fun of each other. Also, Patreon. We're on Patreon. Check it out over there, patreon.com slash crawlspacepodcast. We do some live vaults, which is pretty much me and Lance talking about current true crime cases, but uh, we're diversifying a little bit. Last week, we played a pilot of an episode of a new show that I think we're going to launch at some point, maybe this summer, with our friend Otavia Zapala. So check that out over there at patreon.com slash Podcast, And we're doing a live show with the podcast True Crime Obsessed, who we find to be hilarious. And the show is Saturday, October 5th, 2019 at 7 p.m. at the Bell House in Brooklyn, New York. Check it out. It's me, Lance, Maggie Freeling, and Patrick Hines and Jillian Pensavale of True Crime Obsessed. It's going to be a great show. Tickets are limited, so get them fast. Okay, everybody, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoy this interview with Dr. Lee Meller. Welcome to Crawl Space, Dr. Lee Meller. How are you today?
0: Actually not having a bad day, so you caught me in a... Good time.
1: <laughs> well, good. And uh, I, I'm joined here with uh, Dr. Lance.
3: I am not a doctor of anything unless perhaps by the end of this interview, maybe I could get like an honorary doctorate after uh, speaking with you.
0: Yeah, I might be working on something like that. That's I, the way I that have, works. Have little projects in the works.
1: Okay, great. Yeah, I'd appreciate that. Yeah, and collectively, we're known as Dr. Crawl Space.
0: Yeah,
3: okay.
1: So, uh, So you can just <laughs> no. call us doctor if you want. And either that one of good. us will answer.
0: Well, one of you can be D, one of you can be R. When you come together, it's enough. Yeah.
1: Perfect. Yeah. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. I've always said we share a brain anyway.
0: <laughs> so who's the left hemisphere and who's the right? No, no comment. It, it's
1: back and front. Yeah.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so you do a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so you, <laughs> you it. put it lightly. You've written some books. You, you host a podcast called Murder Was the Case Some of your books here are Cold North Killers, Rampage, and you mostly, you you are, you live in Canada, so you mostly focus on uh, Canadian crime. Is that accurate?
0: I would say that's accurate of my popular works. The the third popular work that I'm not technically credited with, but if you look inside the book uh, cover, you'll see that I am an author of about 40% of it. It's the crime book. Um, DK Books has a really beautiful series of coffee table books that are illustrated and they cover things from science to history and of course one of those things was crime and I wrote about 40% of that book it's actually visually it's my favorite one I've ever done but my name is not on the cover although I wrote almost half of it then academically I've done Homicide a Forensic Psychology Casebook I edited that with my co-editor, Joan Swart, and I wrote about four chapters on that. So the chapters are, this will be of interest to you, on sexually sadistic homicide offenders, necrophilic homicide offenders, general sexual homicide offenders, and psychopathic homicide offenders. And then I edited and wrote a number of chapters for another textbook called Understanding Necrophilia, so that's who you're dealing with.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you keeping it light and uh, having a good personality.
0: I and, thought we uh, were
3: just going to talk about your music career. <laughs> I know, right?
0: Could do that too, but that's a sadder story, man. <laughs> oh.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, you um, this uh, the crime book looks really interesting. Uh, you have collaborated with American crime writers um, Kathy Scott, Shanna Hogan, and Rebecca Morris. Uh, yeah. What was what was it like? Those are all American crime writers, and were you the only Canadian one there? And how did you get connected with those those uh folks?
0: I think there was a guy Michael Kerrigan, on that project too, and okay. he's a Brit. But yeah, it was. Uh, I wouldn't call it a collaboration. It was that we had a pool of cases, and we all got to kind of pick the ones that we wanted to do. Yep. And, and then we didn't really communicate. Kathy was at the center of that hub, and so I would do my assignments by the deadline, speak with Kathy, and they do the same. But I wasn't really in close communication with Shanna, Rebecca, or uh, Michael.
3: Sounds like an interesting arrangement anyway. So they yeah. they were they um, presented this opportunity by the publishing company? Uh, was it DK, the publishing company? There Was this an idea that was presented to them, or did they bring it to DK, and then, then you got brought into the loop?
0: DK approached Kathy Scott and Kathy picked the people she wanted to work with. Gotcha. And Kathy and I, Kathy and I have worked together for quite some time. She used to actually write for another one of my projects, a uh, digital magazine I had called Serial Killer Quarterly. And she wrote about two or three articles for that. And so we've always had a good relationship Professionally, I would consider Kathy a friend, even though we've never met in person. And I think that she knows that I'm a good writer and researcher and I'm reliable. And so thankfully she brought me on board. And the great thing about that is, you know, they paid you right up front. It's like, get the articles to us. We send you a check. And so you don't have to worry about royalties. If I could have like a gig like that all the time, I would be on the gravy train, man.
1: Yeah. You're talking to the choir.
0: Yeah. <laughs> have you guys done some writing and, in- that, that department? That's no, the
3: we wish. Yeah, no time. <laughs> I mean, we were talking before we started the interview that you work pretty much from when you wake up to when you can't work anymore. And that's just the hustle with this whole gig, you know, whether or not yeah. you actually are a doctor or if you want to write or if you have written. You, there's just always something to do.
1: It's always grind 30. Yeah, grind, that's yeah. it.
0: Grind 30. That, yeah. That, that doctor, it doesn't make it easier. In fact, it makes it harder because then you got to grind out academic articles that are rigorously reviewed if they're any good. And then you don't even get paid for them. You just get to keep your job if you even get one in the first place. All
1: right. Well, we we can give our doctorate back then. Yeah, I'm good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You don't don't, don't want it, man. You don't want it. (laughs) But it does, I, I will say this if you've done it properly, the process does make you stronger. It makes you a better thinker. But that's just not true of all doctorates. There's a lot of bullshit doctors getting handed out, but mine wasn't one of them.
3: Okay. I'll
1: take whichever one. Yeah, we we definitely we definitely have the bullshit one. Um, So your your presentation at ASOC was on sexual sadists. Is that accurate? Okay,
0: I think it was about three quarters sexual sadists and a quarter necrophilic offenders, and then so then you get into paraphilic mutilation between the two of those. Yeah,
1: it was pretty disturbing, um, but very captivating.
3: It really was the talk of uh, at least that. I mean, it was the talk. It might have been the talk of the whole thing. Aside from. Aside from our panel, of course, which you know, oh, obviously, we, we got like dominated the, the 20 minute standing ovation after. But mm-hmm. I mean, whenever people were talking about who was speaking, they always went back to your session and just how uh, articulately you depict some of these really heinous uh, circumstances and crimes.
0: Yeah, someone has to do it. And I was selected. So of a, the baby boom generation, the guy that I would say was one of the best at doing that was um, is. Dr. Eric Hickey, and he's out of California, he wrote Serial Murderers and Their Victims, which, for my money, is probably the best overall textbook on serial murder. And I met uh, Dr. Hickey through a listserv that we were both a part on, and we got along. And this was around the time I was starting my PhD. And some advice for your listeners, just be bold in life. You know, don't go, oh, my God, it's Sarah Kiki. I can't believe he's talking to me. I just went, hey, you know, I'm starting my PhD. We get along. I like you. How would you like to be on my doctoral committee? And he's like, yeah, sure. And so that was a member of my doctoral committee is having arguably the, one of the top five serial murder experts in the world on there just by asking, you know, just by being yeah. confident. And so what happened was. Eric identified pretty quickly that I have something let's call it wrong, right with me. So it's, it's right for what I do and it's right because someone needs to do it, but clearly there's something wrong with me (laughs) that makes me be able to do this right thing. And that is to basically go into the bottom of the abyss, the very bottom, and then step into the sewer that runs through it, which I guess if it's an abyss, it's a, floating sewer Mm. he said, look, there's people that have done sexual sadism and rape and pedophilia. There is no shortage of people that have done that. He said, but there's almost no exploration of necrophilia and that kind of thing. And you can do it. So you should, because that's where you'll stand out. And so that's where I began. And then I pretty much mapped out that space and I figured out all those ideas. And then after that, I was able to get out into the other kind of paraphilic behaviors, so I got the sex sadism stuff and the pedophilia and all that in many ways, yeah.
3: Now, I am assuming the obvious reason why no one has really touched the necrophilia is because of just the horrendousness of uh, and the grossness of the whole concept. Were you able to easily get past that because you just saw that it could be something of, of the, the niche that you could stand out in?
0: Yeah, I mean... I don't think it's as bad as torture. So if you're talking about sexual sadism, if you want to look at this from a a rational perspective, I don't know what you guys have seen. I've seen some awful stuff having to do what I do, you know, and I, I shouldn't say having, choosing to do what I do. But it's always worse to see somebody getting murdered or tortured than it is to see someone just doing things to a dead body. And so I think that it's actually... Not entirely true that necrophilia is, for lack of a better word, somehow worse or like the, it's grosser, maybe. It's but apples and gross, oranges. Does, does gross bother you as much as the kind of shivers and just rage and 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 frustration, like an emotional concoction that I can't even describe to you that you get watching somebody be hurt as they're still alive no, and reacting in pain. Yeah. Nowhere near it. I'll take right. gross. You right. know? I, I have to do it all. If I don't have it all, then I'm useless. Right. If you're just an expert in necrophilia, you don't know anything about sex sadism, sometimes you're going to confuse it to you. Everything you see is going to be necrophilia. Okay. You know, I, I covered all those bases. I have to. But the point is that necrophilia is not the hard part for me. Are you guys familiar with the one lunatic, one ice pick video that the Canadian murderer Luca Magnata posted on the internet? No. Okay, well, it's pretty bad. And I had to watch that at the time to comment on it. He basically rapes and mutilates a corpse over a series of about 10 minutes. Uh, and he he makes it look like he's cannibalizing it. But I figured out he wasn't, but it's, it's terrible. Like, I mean, he's doing this, to the corpse of his victim, but once again, it's just the gross factor because that guy's not suffering. I would have rather watch that any day mm. than watch him hurt the, the guy while he was still alive. You know, watch him wriggle and squirm and mm. scream. Sometimes when they, they're trying to scream, but they've got a gag in their mouth or their face is smashed in. And so you get this, this gurgle or this or uh, that kind of thing. That's much more difficult. I think I've made my point. Jesus
1: yeah, yeah. Where, where, Jesus where, Christ. Where do
3: you see these videos? <laughs> like, where do you see that? Who and it, why do you see and that? It,
1: and it's pretty far down there anyway. Like like most people can't even get to one of them, let alone two of them, yeah. like, uh, like you're describing.
0: Yeah, exactly. So in answer to the question, where did I see that? Uh, what I was specifically thinking of was, there was a video that predated the Magnata one called Three Guys, One Hammer. And that was from Ukraine. And there were these two psychopaths. They weren't sexual. They were more like thrill killers, just too young. I think they're around the age of about 20. And they killed something like i'm gonna get this wrong but something like 21 people in 17 days so technically they're more spree killers and they would film it on their cell phones you know you've got camera on your cell phone and they didn't broadcast it they never intended for anyone to see it but somehow it got leaked onto the internet Hmm. And uh, what I needed to do is at one point comment on uh, comment on what I would call sadism that isn't sexually sadistic. because not all sadism is obviously sexually gratifying. It can just be cruelty, right? Intense cruelty. And so I watched that in order to be able to articulate an example of this other uh, non-sexual sadism. And it was awful to watch.
1: Now, I have a uh, something here written down from your panel at, at ASOC that says, uh, watching the victim suffer and not inflicting the pain, uh, that is what makes a sexual sadist. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, that's actually in the, the DSM-5. That's specified. So any other definition, sometimes people just let it slip and they know better. But really, it's, it's about the response. So I shouldn't just say watching. I should say hearing can work, too. So you have someone like Lawrence Bittaker, a.k.a. Pliers. who got that name because he would twist the nipples of and breasts of his victims with a pair of pliers and I think maybe some other areas, too. And this was back in around 1980 in California. And obviously he would get off watching them, uh, their faces in fear and pain and, and and humiliation, too. That would be a part of it. But the recordings he made were audio recordings. And that's what he would replay to relive those experiences. They would have been like mass right? The materials, they're basically porn for him. So you can also hear it yeah. too. I imagine you might be able to make an argument that you could also feel it. So I know I'm already taking you guys down a dark trail, but you guys kind of asked for it. We
3: did. Yeah, we don't really expect to have someone like you on and then actually talk about your music career. So. <laughs> this this is uh this is expected Uh,
0: so uh, like another example is and this is just something i'm putting on the table as a possibility you have ted bundy who apparently would be sodomizing his victims as he murdered them and he would get a sexual thrill from feeling their sphincter like clenching and unclenching as he was killing them as they were dying so I don't know. Perhaps you could say that's a type of response too. to, you know, is it at some point it's it's hard to know where to draw the line. But definitely seeing and hearing the reaction of someone in pain, humiliation and fear, that's the and being sexually aroused by it. That's the core of sexual sadism. Take up the sexual arousal part. You just got sadism.
1: And uh, wow. And uh, so during your panel, you talked a lot about a guy named David Parker Ray. Who was uh, yeah. a serial killer and uh, was, it, it was some very disturbing stuff, uh, including yeah. uh, tapes that, um, that he would play for his victims?
0: Yes, and that was because it would terrify them. And he had a series of tapes, and at one point they were on the internet and they got taken down. It's one of those things where you went, damn it, I should have just known better and grabbed them while I still had the chance. <laughs> but they used to have the full body of the tapes. And you can play these in a room full of cops and they'll get shutters. I've got bits and pieces of them, but he would, uh, you know, he had a tape that I think he made in the seventies and then one that he made in the eighties and he would keep updating it and trying different things. But imagine you're a woman. Uh, a lot of the time it was sex workers that he would abduct off the streets of Albuquerque and you're brought with you know, a bag over your head and you're you're tied up and you don't know where the hell you are, but you're placed into a room and you know you're in a lot of trouble. And then you just hear this voice with this bit of a cowboy drawl, come on, like seemingly everywhere, really loud, you know, hello there, bitch. You know, you're probably wondering what's going on, probably terrified, bound, can't see nothing. And then he would go on for 20 minutes and he'd describe how helpless their situation was how they could try all these things at he, but he's done this a million times before and it never works. He's seen it all. And this is exactly what's going to happen to you. You're going to be raped in every hole. You're going to be tortured. And if I feel like killing you, I might, but he didn't kill all of his victims. Some of them, he just gave drugs to and and hypnotized. And they kind of found themselves wandering lost along these desert roads going, I don't know what happened, but I'm in a lot of pain. And, where the hell was I for the past week? So that just goes to show also that say, um, sadism, whether sexual or not, it's not always, it doesn't always necessitate murder, right? Um, in fact, I would say in a lot of the cases, the murder is just to get rid of the witness, just to finish it off. Yep. In the case of David Parker Ray, here's a guy who had devoted his life to, making it so that he could keep these women for weeks, you know, living out his ultimate sexual fantasy for weeks, sometimes I think even months, and that sexual fantasy was to do terrible things to them. I mean, he had a gynecological chair set up in a trailer with giant studded dildos and an electric breast stretcher and uh, and electrical shock uh, devices, and I could keep going on, but you get the point. That's why I use David Parker Ray, as an example of a certain type of sadist, what I would call like a, a complex sadist or maybe like a grand sadist or something for like the, at the most extremes of organization and paraphernalia and wanting to prolong it. He's just the best example. So I always give him uh, when I give that talk.
1: Yeah, it's pretty effective. So
3: he's, not, sure. <laughs> he's no longer with us, right? He he died in prison?
0: Yeah, he got what I call the devil's blessing. So he made it till about the age of 60. They think he killed his first victim when he was about 16. And he'd been killing about one woman a year from the age of 16 to 60. So that's what, like, about 44 victims, I think. And they never found any of the bodies. So we know he's a serial killer, but he was never convicted of serial murders. And they think what what he did was that he got rid of the bodies down mine shafts, and he, because he was a ranger at a lot of these parks out in New Mexico, and so he would know where all the mine shafts and canyons and things were, and he could just dispose of them down there. And now I've strayed from your original question, but I was talking about when they caught him. So he gets to age 60. That's a long illustrious serial killing career he gets in the prison and his girlfriend you know she's cooperating with the authorities against him it looks like he's totally fucked no he is a master manipulator he manages to flip her and convince her not to cooperate with the authorities anymore even though he's not even in proximity with her He gets the people in the prison to like him, including some of the guards, and they're passing messages around and everything. Like, I swear, if Satan was walking the earth, it would be David Parker Ray, and he'd be wearing cowboy boots. The first trial he goes to, they don't even believe one of the surviving victims. David Parker Ray says, Hey, it was consensual. She was into it. You know, it's just BDSM, which isn't sexual sadism, by the way, because the fact of something being non-consensual is also its a part of the crucial criteria for sexual sadism. So if you're into BDSM, you're not a sexual sadist. And that was his argument. This was a BDSM encounter. She agreed to it, you know, and they believed them. And so this poor brave woman, Kelly got up there and talked about this horrific ordeal and reliving the most nightmarish things and didn't even, wasn't even believed and, and her tormentor is then free but they managed to I think they uncovered more evidence or there was there was some way that they got a second trial out of it and when he went back on trial he was convicted by that time he was having heart problems I think he did less than a year in jail or just around a year and as I've said it's not like he was doing a hard time he, people liked him in prison he, despite the fact of what he was he just was able to do that and then he died so i call that the devil's blessing even though i don't actually believe in the devil i think in an allegorical sense that's the best way to describe it i mean he almost wasn't punished for a life of absolute evil and depravity
3: damn you know don't name your kids with three names because that <laughs> there's just no statistically i believe <laughs> There's there's no good that's coming from that.
1: I think they just use the middle name when uh, when when the media gets a hold of a serial killer. Am I wrong, there, Lee?
0: I think that's probably likely. Yeah, there's probably a lot of David Rays in the world. Yeah, you know, check your LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're gonna be getting messages. I'm like, deleting. You, I'm you, you...
3: deleting my LinkedIn now.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I noticed that there's definitely an overrepresentation of people with the name Lee. Yeah. As like myself, but it's usually as a middle name. Yeah. And I've often wondered is that like a Confederate thing? You know, is that like. Uh, oh, the, sure.
3: Like a Robert E. Lee thing.
0: Yeah. And another one is Wayne. John you Wayne. Find, yeah. You're right. You're uh, absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. And I've noticed a lot of Dwaynes lately or Dwaynes too. So those, there's like certain types of names that seem to be not exactly rare, but. Not common in day to day life that pop up a lot in serial killers, and I have a theory about the Wayne thing. If you guys want to hear, sure. it. sure.
3: Oh, please! I was just going to say this feels to me like a new crawl space segment that we could use you for on occasion, which is these, um, like, sort of red light type uh, names, or you know, like indicators.
0: <laughs> yeah. So my idea with Wayne, it's like, w- w- why did this name suddenly come into circulation? Like, you don't mean hear about many people in the 19th century called Wayne, like the outlaw Wayne this, right? No, it's like one of these sort of names that arose with the baby boom.
1: Oh, John Wayne.
0: You're right ahead of me, man. And watch John Wayne?
1: (laughs) John Wayne is
0: a macho guy. He doesn't take any shit. He's a hard man. He doesn't express his feelings. And so any father that named his kid after John Wayne... Has probably got statistically a likelier chance of being a bit of an asshole to his son and raising his son in that kind of way than. And now, now, I'm not. This is not like really a, a condemnation of, of the Wanes of the world, <laughs> but I'm just saying that if you if you run the averages,
1: yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really compelling, actually, and you could probably trace it back to being some truth to that. Yeah, yeah.
0: even
3: um, even Lee. So there's Lee Marvin, who was the uh, another tough guy
1: actor right yeah. around that same
3: time. There for you him. go.
0: Yeah, yep.
1: There you go. Um, also, yep. uh, regarding uh, Lee killers, this Robert Lee Yates, we talked to uh, Cloyd Steiger about Uncle and, Cloyd. Yeah, Uncle Cloyd, and he came up a few times as well as there was an there was also w- you went to visit a uh, was it a Wayne in in Seattle with Cloyd?
0: Yeah, Dwayne Lee Harris. Dwayne uh, one Lee Harris. The, oh, so that's
1: both Dwayne and okay.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. Stay as <laughs> far away <laughs> from
3: that
1: guy. Yeah
0: yeah we went to see Dwayne um if, if it's okay I I only want to talk vaguely about it because it's, I've established a, a relationship with him and there's got to be some trust there he's in prison he's a target and let to say in the long run it's better for me to speak with Dwayne and have that trust than rather just spill all the beans now, and then he won't talk to me yeah.
3: anymore. Okay, so you, we so can you're talk saying, about
0: Dwayne's case. You're saying
1: you like Dwayne more than you like us? Is that what you're saying?
0: You like Dwayne more than you like Cloyd? I'm saying Dwayne's more valuable to me than you guys are. That's, that, that, <laughs> Come makes, on. that
3: makes sense. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll We'll take our doctorate back.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts.
1: No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who's about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean. Something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served.
0: Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check.
2: We will say that
3: when uh, when Cloyd told us the quick story, he said that you had a completely different impression of prison. So I I want to if you're able to tell us a little bit about your expectations going in there and the reality.
0: I don't know that I had many expectations going in there. I I did think that when we went into a room with Dwayne, that it would be larger than a closet and that if it wasn't that he might be wearing handcuffs. But we were just in the room about the size of a closet with a serial killer who almost being, though he's almost 60, he didn't look it. He looked like he could be in his late 40s, you know, um, athletic, tall, black guy, uh, gang banger. Those things aren't mutually exclusive. You can be in a gang and also be a sexual serial killer. You know, you just don't tell your homeboys about that part of it. And so, yeah, I mean, it it was a situation that, on paper, was very dangerous. uh, But what are you going to do? Just say I can't do it and cry and run out? No, you just suck it up. You go here's the situation. If shit kicks off, well, then I'm going to have to deal with that. So I would say that was the only thing about the prison that surprised me. Is I thought there'd be a little bit more security, but. Maybe they've taken Dwayne's measure and realized that he's not quite that nuts.
3: Okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. And that is interesting to hear regardless, because with shows like, uh, I don't know, like Mind Hunter, you see them go and interview killers and it's got, you know, there's a security guy there. It's a big room. There's a table. They're chained down to the table with any show. Right. So it's just interesting to hear that they basically put you in a closet with a serial killer.
0: Yeah, well, Cloyd was in there too, so it was two on one. But I mean, the guy's a psychopath, right? Yeah. And he would he would admit that to you, and he's a gangbanger. So even if you have a cop and and myself, we're both I think bigger than the average guy. It's still something to contend with. It's something that you shouldn't underestimate the for capacity sure. for a guy like that to just pick up. Like there was a computer monitor in there. He could have just picked up the computer monitor and just brained one of us with it. And if he did it quickly enough, we would have been out long enough to get the other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So yeah.
1: Wow. Damn. Um so so I take it that didn't happen. There was no altercation.
0: No, it's just a matter of, you know, don't make him mad and why would you? you yeah. It's better to be his friend. And you right. know, that's what and that's what I'm doing here. It's like I, I could give you all the dirt on Dwayne, but you know, we have a relationship right now, and that doesn't mean I'm a serial killer groupie. It means I'm being clever. <laughs>
1: right, right. Yeah. Um, I I really appreciated your episodes with Cloyd um, on your podcast Murder Was the Case, and I was kind of really jealous, to be honest, that you got to hang out with Cloyd and drink some bourbon. Um, uh-huh. And it seemed like it was getting real kind of late. And were you guys like really drinking bourbon and everything?
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's, I'm that's so how
1: jealous. We
3: this is, so yeah. jealous. Do you think that Cloyd, Uncle Cloyd, would fake drinking
1: bourbon? Well, I don't know. In, in your last episode, it was a, also a dive bar kind, but you were like, well, it's the morning, so we can't really uh, pretend we're drinking.
0: Yeah, that was it. But no, that's all authentic. Like, yeah. yes, uh, depending on the guest and the time of day, but sometimes even when I start in the afternoon, no, like we authentically drink. And yeah. sometimes we drink a lot. I, I drank pretty hard with Cloyd for sure. And that's one of the reasons we're friends. Uh, I told that, <laughs> it's a, I think it was a wannabe criminology student messaged me on LinkedIn before I went to the conference. And he's, asked, he's saying, hey, I'm going to the, the Asoc conference. I'll see you there. You know, I was just have all these questions for you. You know, like what did you do to become a criminologist? And question two and three. And I've, I'm busy, as I told you guys. So I just responded to him. I said, you know what, man, just hit me up at the conference we'll sit down over a whiskey and, and I'll, I'll, you know, I, and then I'll answer your questions then. And then he comes back at me. He's like, well, you know, I don't drink. And I said, well, if you want to get along with police (laughs) officers and you want to get inside this and the scoop, I'm afraid you're going to have to. And then I didn't ever see him. So whatever, (laughs) you know, that sounds like a bit of an asshole thing to do. Like, I don't know his history, but that's also a reality. Yeah. I mean there's there's a heavy drinking culture in among police officers and they don't want you to be this snooty academic sitting there with your legs crossed drinking a flute of champagne moderately, with your nose in the air, pontificating about why statistics shows they're wrong, right? And that's what so many academics fuck up. And the reason that I think guys like Cloyd and other police officers get along with me and will and will hang out with me and sit along and drink with me and and, and become friends is because i'm I'm the opposite of that you know you don't have to act that way to be an intelligent educated person
3: looks like i'm gonna have to change up my technique because i'm i got my mimosa ready to go every time i'm going to talk to some law enforcement official you really started hey man, it a,
0: a mimosa is okay but it if you're going to have a mimosa, you're supposed to have it in the morning. <laughs> it's a hangover beverage, right? So you yeah, get it. That's up, right. And that's how you get your hair, the dog, and your citrus in, in the morning. Your vitamin
1: C. Do you have a doctorate in why.
3: Um,
0: mixology a, as mixology. well? Mixology, <laughs> doctorate mixology. <laughs> Ah. Uh, I've often uh, joked that I have a PhD in THC. (laughs) Nice.
3: (laughs) Nice. Speaking of mind-altering substances, I'm curious about your opinion uh, in regards to Jeffrey Dahmer and what his level of sexual sadism was.
0: I don't think Dahmer was a sexual sadist.
3: Oh, good. Okay, this is going to be fun because he was known for abducting and holding people against their will and trying to inject them with chemicals and and he was a homosexual man, right, preying but on homosexual yeah. young men.
1: I, I want to guess, though, because I had something else written down here. Uh, picarism? Yeah. Pickerism, Sexual arousal arousal from stabbing or cutting someone? Is that what uh, Dahmer was all about? Give us your Dahmer.
0: Okay, so Dahmer did hurt people. So I'd say he did things to them that were torturous, but not torture. Okay, so if there was pain involved, it was a byproduct of something else that he was trying to achieve. And the worst examples of this is when he tried to he drilled through the skulls of his victims and he injected, I think it was hot water, sometimes, sometimes acid into their brains. And it wasn't to hurt them in the sense of causing pain, although he obviously knew that must have happened, but it was to kill their will. He wanted a kind of zombie, really. You know, just think of a a zombie. It kind of stumbles around. It's not smart enough to leave your apartment, but it's warm and you can have sex with it and it's compliant. You can always dominate it. That was pretty much what that was about. So he strangled his victims to death a lot of the time. I think that was probably because it was the least messy and if he had used a gun it he was in an apartment building so it would have made more of a noise so I think that the reason he strangled most of his victims which would seem sadistic was actually just that it was after he drugged them too a lot of the time so it's just a quiet way to to get to the body having the body that's everything that's Dahmer's main purpose he's like so if David Parker Ray exemplifies sexual sadism on a sort of grand extreme level, Dahmer exemplifies necrophilia on a grand extreme level. It's all about getting that body. And I mean, I don't know how many levels you guys want to get into this, but right, I come... could do Dahmer for about 10 minutes.
3: <laughs> yeah. Keep going. Keep going. I, this is really interesting.
0: If you track Dahmer's sexual interests in childhood, Through childhood and teenagers uh, years it was more that he began being interested in dissecting things Mm -hmm. like animals and stuff in the woods and putting his hands into the incisions and he would talk about being sexually aroused by feeling the warm coils of the entrails and you know chopping things up and seeing how they worked and not meaning to at first but just suddenly realizing that this was sexually arousing him, he's also a homosexual. So now imagine yourself in this situation. You're in a time when you're you're growing up in Akron, Ohio. That's where he grew up. He'd had he moved to Wisconsin, I think, later as an adult. But you're growing up in Akron, Ohio, in you know the the '70s. It's not the kind of environment where you can come out as a homosexual. Like you're gonna be ridiculed, probably targeted for violence. Even his own father admitted that he wouldn't have been fine with Jeff coming out this way. So he's living with that stigma, as were probably other people in Akron, Ohio at the time. But then imagine that it goes so much deeper that you realize that not only are you a homosexual, but you're sexually aroused by the thought of cutting a man open and seeing what the inside of his chest cavity looks like and playing around with his entrails and and having sex with the wounds, you know, and cutting his head off, because then it develops, right? The fantasy develops. It, it starts with that, and then it goes into cutting them into pieces, and you know, putting the head over here and cutting the penis off, and and then it, it, it graduates eventually all the way to eating them. And who knows? I, I, is is the is that the end, or or is could it have gone farther? It's a spectrum of. of behavior around dead bodies sex mutilation eating and he just progressed through all of it so it's not only that he couldn't ever seek help because of his homosexuality if that's a hard conversation how do you have a conversation with people that actually there's more it's not just that i'm in the guys it's that i don't want them to be moving and I want to – I would uh, really – I guess they have to be dead because I want to like, cut out their heart and jack off into the cavity and then eat their heart. You know, like, you can't have that conversation.
3: Okay. So what is the difference between someone like Ted Bundy who has is, who is, uh, stated that his uh, his murders come from a place of rage where he, like, like, almost hears another personality growling at him to kill – and and that's like full of rage, I'm assuming. And Jeffrey Dahmer seems like weirdly full of curiosity.
0: Mm, yeah, well, I think the a key thing that we have to and, and and by the way, Bundy was a necrophile too. Yeah, but he was also a sexual sadist. Where Dahmer was not. Bundy was a full blown psychopath. So I don't know how much you guys know about that, but if you got a score of thirty or higher, you meet the clinical cutoff for being a categorical psychopath. Dahmer was psychopathic, as many people are. You know, he has traits of a psychopath, but he didn't hit that 30 score. I think his sort of mental state is probably better accounted for by something like an autism spectrum disorder or perhaps schizoid personality disorder. He might have been on his way to being fully psychotic at some points. That was debated a lot in court. So the psychological part of them is very different. I mean, Bundy's a sexually sadistic psychopath who likes a bit of necrophilia. Dahmer has got some other mental thing going on. He's not sexually sadistic. He's psychopathic, but not a psychopath. So they're different in, in that way, even though some of their postmortem behaviors were the same. I think that Dahmer did have some rage. He does have. One victim, I remember he he was out drinking and he took him back to a hotel room and he just woke up and he realized that he beat the guy to death, but he couldn't really tell you what that was about because he was blackout drunk at the time. There was definitely some rage in there. But I think, yes, Bundy a lot more so. And let's begin with, okay, what's the relation of these men to their victims? They covet them. In the case of Jeffrey Dahmer, he covets men who I think that he liked athletic men and a lot of has been made out of well, he, you know, he was killing black men, therefore it's racist or a hate crime. This might be controversial to say, I think he was going for like the black guys with the sort of athletic, very muscular bodies. You know, that, that's the commonality you'll see in there. He never went for an overweight black guy or whatever. He also lived in that neighborhood. So I think that that was his ideal was this muscular man and if you if you look at the photographs he took of his victims after death they would always emphasize the torso element right mm-hmm. this other like the chest and the abs and that accentuated and, and where would he cut into first right mm-hmm. and and so in a way it's kind of interesting because that's what women find interest um sexually arousing in men or, you know, captures their interest is, you know, a nice strong chest and abs. And so I I think that that was what Dahmer coveted, you know, that was his ideal male. Now, Bundy is like the heterosexual, completely heterosexual. And he goes after the middle class, beautiful, long haired ideal of a woman at the time. Like, I found... I look at pictures of Dom, um I look at pictures of Bundy's victims I find them all universally attractive. So both are coveting but I think Bundy had more of a sense of like rage because he felt that this type of woman was eternally unattainable to him and he thought about it at much deeper levels than Dahmer did and he made this about his legitimacy. So he came from a different family background than Dahmer. Dahmer had a fucked up family, but his mom and dad were together. Bundy very well could have been, he was an illegitimate child. He never met his birth father. He might have known and it's suspected that his grandfather was actually his father. So an incestuous conception, right? So you've got this person who's very conscious about their circumstances. He he grew up for a long time thinking his mother was his sister. And so he's starting off with like a feeling already of being uh, stigmatized and outside of the order. Although, I mean, you could say the same of Dahmer too, but I think he framed it in a much more of a social class way. Like I'm not good enough for these women. And I think he always knew that, that he could For a while, he could wear this mask and he could get by and he could pretend to be from this middle-class family and I think pretend to be normal. I think he was very aware of the fact that he was abnormal. Dahmer couldn't really ever fake being normal, so he didn't have that problem. But Bundy could for a while, but then he would know that the mask would invariably slip. They would find him out and he'd be rejected. And I think that he needed this these women, more so than sexually, he needed them as almost like to tell him that his identity was okay. They were a sign that his identity was fine, but it wasn't. So there's this whole other element to Bundy too. And that's where like more of the rage comes from. Like they both have rage, but Bundy's got more of it. And it's because it comes from that complex process which I can get into more if you want, but if you think I've done a okay job of articulating it, we can move on.
3: No, that's so, excellent. That's, and, yeah, that's definitely good. Very that, compelling. Is that something that has um, that has drawn you to the criminology aspect is that it just seems like this giant knot and all of the threads in this knot are different, um, different uh, personalities and different set of circumstances that these people have been raised in? Because like you just said, Dahmer and Bundy were different uh, set of circumstances that they were raised in and, and they have different personalities. So listening to you sort of try to untangle the knot, I can, I can imagine that that has to be an addictive, uh, an addictive thing. That's hard to let go of.
2: Yeah,
0: that's it. You've got it. Exactly. In fact, I've used that term myself. Give me the doctor back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You've got it, man. You. Um, <laughs> so Dr. Lance, this is what, when I was in there talking to Dwayne, you know, one of the things he said to me is like, look, man, I don't know. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I'm, it's just, there's a screw loose. There's just something wrong with me. And you know, I said, somehow that the term knot came up, I can't remember who it could have been. I, Cloyd, or Dwayne that brought it up. And I said to him, but Dwayne, it's such an interesting knot to try and untangle. I know that you've probably, you know, you know, I, I don't know, actually, but I think that you might have spent a lot of time thinking about it. And, like, we all want to know what that is. You probably do. I do. Cloyd does. We all want to do. So, though it might seem out of our reach, like, let's try, because it's fascinating. It's, it's really the most uh, worth that you have is this complex puzzle that you are. And good point. if we yeah. can just unthread it a little bit, you know, and you're not going to say anything to a guy a guy like Dwayne, like, we could use it to catch killers in the future. You know, you, you can't do that with, he doesn't care. Right. He doesn't care. But talking about Dwayne to Dwayne is, he's interested in, you know, he thinks that he's interesting and, you know, fortunately, so do I. It doesn't mean that I think that he's a good person or that he should be revered or that he should be put on a platform. But psychologically, he's interesting. Actually, most people are psychologically interesting, even outside of serial killers, right? Yep. I I, I even find people fascinating how uh, just normal people just to watch how hypocritical they can be sometimes without even seeming to notice it.
1: You talking about Lance with that?
0: Uh, No, I wasn't. (laughs) Don't don't give me.
1: (laughs) See, Lancey Grace. He's he's about to get all fired up. Getting going. Getting (laughs) going. Um I, I also got a stat from the ASOC and I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure it was the typical from stat you. guy over here. Yeah, I'm I'm just the stat guy today. But <laughs> Sorry,
0: uh we figured out who the left brain is.
1: <laughs> Thank you. No. I'll take my doctorate back too. Um, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> did did you give some kind of stat that it was like twenty three percent of sexual sadist crimes begin with the criminal pretending to be police officer or law enforcement
0: that may have been among a cluster of stats that i gave it wouldn't be that they begin with that but it's that they often impersonate a police officer as a form of their mo okay and yeah. it's a, it, it, it's a very good impersonation right uh, sorry a very good tactic right because yeah. if someone comes up to you in a police officer's uniform you know resist that your own peril Like we've seen what happens when people do and there's a good reason for that. So it's very complicated, but at the same time, do you then, what if someone comes up to you in a police officer's uniform and they've got a badge, but they're not a police officer. Like you, do you ask the cop, can I study your badge? Can, and especially if you're a, a prostitute strolling along the strip in the night and they roll up on you in a car or something like that, right? It's just a very good ruse and sexual sadists. I would say a lot of them, especially the more complex ones like David Parker Ray or Bundy, who I'd say is a little less complex, but still a very organized offender. um, They both use that ruse, by the way. And I think for them, planning it is a part of the fantasy, maybe not a, a sexual part of the fantasy, but there's more to it than just the sex part. There's like the excitement of it. You know, there's the execution of the plan. And I think that's something that we can relate to, too. When you have an idea and you start to put the wheels in motion and you go, oh, yeah. And then this will make it work even better. Like, you know, you guys have probably had an yeah. idea for the podcast where you sure. one of you said something, the other one's going, yeah. And you've high fived. You get excited. They have that same excitement over the planning process. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We, we fist bump.
0: Here, we do. We,
3: we don't blow up the fist after, but we do fist bump.
0: <laughs> um
1: the high five's a little too broy for us. Yeah. We're doctors and all. Yeah, we don't we're not we are not we not bros. Yeah.
0: What is what is fist bumpy? Like I, I do the fist bump, but I don't know where it came from.
3: I feel like baseball. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a baseball thing. Maybe I'm wrong though. Yeah. We'll just go with baseball. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I think I prefer it to anything with an open palm because Me too. Oh- Open palms, they can get sweaty. Like, And I'm not just saying it's the other person. It can be me, too, right? Oh, I have best. sweaty
3: palms right now. Yeah.
0: Yeah, me, too. And I don't know why. I'm not nervous. I'm not yeah. hot. But, um, yeah, the fist pump is just a bit like it means the same thing, but... I yeah, f- I'm not sure of where that arose from, so I'll take your baseball answer. Yeah, like I feel to-
1: like I can aim better with the fist. Definitely, the exploding like- part came from baseball. I think. Yeah, like <laughs> a, a,
0: a,
3: the yeah. home run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can, I can aim better. Like this, I, I miss. It's a little less intimate yeah, yeah.
1: than the open, the open hand.
3: Yeah, yeah.
0: No, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, I know. There's nothing wrong than like a high five that doesn't go right, where you don't like connect. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and parts the uh, someone- palm, and then. You feel guilty, like, now you're not bonded or paired or you're somehow screwed up in your coordination. But if you really think about it, why would it go 100% right every time? That's a good point. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, two people swinging I mean, objects the- at each other. I mean, very— Different,
0: di- yeah. different sized hands. Yeah, the odds right? of it not
1: going— trajectory is much larger. You don't know if one's a righty, maybe no. the other person's a lefty, and you, then you're all fucked up. You know what's god goddamn worse than that? What?
3: a failed handshake Oof. when you squeeze too soon on the handshake and you end up squeezing the more of the fingers mm. than actual, you know, cause on a handshake, mm. oh, yeah, you want yeah. to get that real awkward. You want to get that in, in there, like thumb, like boom, like mm. that's where you want to be. But sometimes you squeeze too soon and you can't take that back. You can't unring that bell.
0: <laughs> well, sometimes that's, the fault of the person whose hand you're shaking too. Like if you squeeze too early, it's like that means their hand's already kind of limp. Yeah, like when fish. I went to a handshake, <laughs> I, I've at least got a semi, right? You know, <laughs> right, I, a nice a little st- st- pseudo stiff hand, right? Yep. So if I start to hear the feel the grasp coming, then I'm ready to come back. And you can judge a guy by his handshake for sure. That's something that you know I've learned. That's an old wisdom that I go by. Yeah, you can tell. You know, I've met a lot of guys with the sort of weak handshake and their character follows.
3: And they all have middle names of Lee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about Dwayne? I think,
0: yeah, I'm well, trying to think if I shook Dwayne's hand now. I, I, I don't think I did. In okay. fact, I don't even think he remembers my name. That's how funny it is to interact with someone like that. At first, he didn't want me to write him and then started to warm up to me at the end. I don't even think he knows my name. So if I wrote him, he'd be like, who are you? I'd have to tell him. You were the you know? guy
3: that I wanted to throw the computer monitor at until you <laughs> proved, proved yourself to be a pretty stand-up guy.
0: That, that's it. But that just goes to show like, how um, self-interested he is and how little you matter to him, ultimately, even if he's trying to fake it, right, right. or even if he's interested for some reason. He was much more interested, actually, when – and this came up naturally – Uh, that I was a doctor. Then things changed. Ah. Because he said, I don't really know what's going on with me, man. Like, I ain't no doctor. And I just saw the opportunity for a a joke and to point out and said, yeah, but I am Dwayne. So, you know, like, that's why we're here. And me and Cloyd laughed. I'm pretty sure Dwayne laughed too. And then the whole tone of the interview changed. Oh, I'm with a doctor now. So this person's actually, you know, maybe of the status that is needed to begin to understand me.
3: Something that he doesn't understand himself.
0: Yeah. He probably remembers that I'm a doctor, but he couldn't tell you my first and last name.
3: What's really interesting, you said a little while ago before we started talking about handshakes and and whatnot, you said that he said something to the effect of, I know I have a screw loose, but I can't tell you why. That's really fascinating to me that someone knows that they have a problem. Like, Like in the movie seven, when he's like, do you know you're crazy? Like I know, I know.
0: when
2: a person is insane, as you clearly are, do you know that you're insane? Maybe you're just sitting around reading guns and ammo, masturbating in your own feces. Do you just stop and go, "Wow, it is amazing how fucking crazy I really am"? Yeah, do you guys do. Doesn't
3: that resonate into real life when you're talking to someone like him and he says, "I guess I gotta. I don't know why I have a screw loose." Just to be self-aware enough to know that you have something wrong with you, I think yeah. is very, really, it's curious for me.
0: Yeah, I think that at the end of the day, you know, after probably sitting in prison for a long time, okay, and thinking about why he was there and why he did what he did, he maybe just came to the conclusion that he doesn't really know why, which is like a really deeply unsatisfying answer because we think that like it's this we could do the psychological excavation where we can go through layers of the person's history and genetics and that we'll eventually get to it. But even though we might be able to do that, that still doesn't mean that that person's aware of that at the time that they're doing the crime, right? They don't know why themselves and you could put it to them and they might, you might understand them better than they understand themselves because you're capable of empathy and insight and they're not
3: right. And you can see it from a distance where they can. not yes they're inside of the whole thing
0: yes and you can observe their contradictions too so one of the things Dwayne would do he would often come back to talking about his mother that my mother was a gangster you know she raised hard men I kind of got the impression from him that you know there wasn't much maternal love going on there but then if you said to him well Dwayne do you think you know that would have anything to do with you killing women he'd he'd get pissed at you. Like you're asking a stupid question. Like, no man, of course it's not like, why are you trying to make it always about that? And then three minutes later, he'd be back to talking about his mom. You think that was
3: in some way, like you insulting his mom in his head.
0: Yeah. That, that might be it. That might be saying that like, I'm blaming his mom who he might have some love or affection for to the highest of his capability. Right. But yeah, he can't look at her a, a, objectively like that he can he okay sorry he can criticize her like or he can maybe look at it and say this is maybe what went wrong but the minute that i just take that and kind of bring it back to him with an extra bit added that's not allowed and so then you just go oh okay well that's how you know that's one of the ways i've learned to interact with Dwayne, and you just put that in the book and. Who knows if that'll be the same with the next guy we'll see it'll be very interesting how different are they are they will that be the same of all of them or will i imagine if i talk to someone like a, an edmund kemper once again not a 30 psychopath Dwayne is so this could be part of the difference here but edmund kemper might uh might be fine with talking about his mother being the root of all evil and why this happened and then again maybe not because i've seen an interview with him where he said. You know, they kept uh, blaming my mother and I didn't like what they had to say about her. And then the minute Kemper starts talking, he starts blaming his mother. Right. So maybe it is the same. Wow. It's fascinating, right? Like, yeah. how can this stuff not be interesting?
3: <laughs> Seriously.
0: And that's, that's, you guys must encounter this stuff sometimes where you have people going, oh, you know, why are you into this true crime stuff, this murder? Like, I don't get it. Like, what is it about? It's like, come on, you know what it's about. It's, it's fascinating inherently stop pretending it is
1: (laughs) that's what i'm gonna say next time someone's like oh you're into true crime just say stop it right now it's fascinating and you know it yeah i mean people love horror movies people
3: love figuring out a mystery. People do crossword puzzles and people untangle psychological knots
1: like you. Yeah. So it's, it, is there you go. And it is fascinating. And it is fascinating. And we want to thank you for, for coming on uh, Crawl Space here today with us. Seriously, an hour just flew by. Yeah, that's, that's a lot of fun uh, talking to you and your wealth of knowledge and would love to uh, talk to you again.
0: Yeah, I'll be back anytime you want me guys. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to myself and as you said, now we just flew by. Can you see how cloyd and I were <laughs> sitting there drinking and talking for 7 hours? Ah, oh, so you go. jealous.
3: So jealous. So, so jealous. jealous. Well, maybe uh, we'll get the opportunity to hang with you and uh have some bourbon or rye or whatever your your particular liquid of choice is.
0: Yeah, well, if you guys are ever in uh, t- uh Toronto or I'm in you guys are in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I go through there every once in a while. Oh, let get us together. know. Yeah, please let yeah. us know.